You're going to love this. Just love it. Who are you, people? It's Danielle and Shano filling in for Brad. Well, I got a couple of thousand questions, you know. I want to speak to someone in charge. I want a lot to complain. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ and 106.7 FM KSOW, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik as hosted normally. By the one and only Brad Friedman of the Brad Blog, but today you get us. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and, and, and as Richard Driver said at the beginning, I would like to file a complaint. Yes, it is Danielle and Shano here, <laughs> formerly of Talking Left, uh, currently of uh, the Tom Harpin program. Yes. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, you can find us on Twitter at Danielle on Radio and at Producer Shano, and we are so thrilled and honored to be sitting in Brad's chair. Uh, Figuratively speaking, of course, today. Yeah, actually, it would be great to sit in Brad's chair because that would mean we'd be all the way across the country in sunny California. Yes, instead of here in the belly of the beast in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Where the votes are often, uh, the, 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 the result of the vote tabulations often end up, for better or for worse. Yes, you and, can blame us all. <laughs> you can blame yes, us you all. You can't blame us all. Just because we live here doesn't mean we're part of that. That's true. Right? That's true. That's true. Uh, I definitely uh, agree with that sentiment, Shana. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For anybody who uh, formerly used to listen to our show, uh, Talking Left, you may know that we, we're kind of legal junkies. We like to follow the, the legal things that go on. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, you know, how Brad and his work, uh, uh, you know, following the vote and, and important stuff like that, which is especially important these days. And Desi with the Green News Report, among all the other things they do, we like to watch the courts. And it, 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 I was thinking that upon the death of Antonin Scalia, that the Supreme Court would be such a bigger part of this election cycle. And for a few days, it seemed to be. Yes. And, you know, it just it, but then it just dropped off. The, the 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 very little we hear about it is is mostly what is the White House doing today or are they trying to do this week to get Antonin Scalia's seat uh, filled in the Supreme Court. And other than that, you know, it's 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 really, you know, hit or miss because the personalities and the, and the, the politics of the presidential election are just so big. And people's I, I guess, you know, the, the networks generally are, are trying to, you know, get eyes on the TV and people are interested in that. But the Supreme Court, while they're down a person, can do some real damage in the meantime. Yeah. And they just finished up all of their oral arguments this term 
and uh, also are making some decisions. And, and, and if you think Citizens United was bad, wait till we tell you about one of the, the cases. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, just wait. That was just argued. And, and, it, and it, it, it will remind you of uh, actually it involves one of your favorite former governors oh. of Virginia. So. <laughs> I am intrigued. Yeah. Uh, yeah. While the mainstream media, the corporate uh, media has been busy making a sports game. Out of yeah. the uh, election cycle, um, the Supreme Court has been busy, 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 whittling away at our rights, our democracy, and anything else they can get their hands on. And yes, they they have made some some favorable or uh, or uh, they, they made, some made non decisions. Yeah, they, they, they didn't didn't crush our rights. That's the, that's the best we can get out of the Supreme Court. Yes, when they don't act on something and we're safe to fight another day to to somehow maybe maintain some vestige of the Bill of Rights. Maybe for a little while. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime. <laughs> in the meantime, we can, if we can get rid of some in the meantime, we will. Recent article over at CommonDreams.org uh, by Nadia Prupis. Forgive me, Nadia, if I'm pr- mispronouncing your names. Uh, Supreme Court quietly approves rule to give FBI sprawling hacking powers. Yes, you heard that correctly. The FBI asked the Supreme Court for even more ability to spy on us, as if, you know, the NSA apparently isn't doing a good enough job. Right. Well, it, it was interesting because they've had this long, uh, drawn out over the last few months battle with Apple. Mm-hmm. And and they tried to use a, a tragedy that happened in Southern California, the mass shooting out there, to say, we have to get in these phones and therefore, Apple, you have to hack the phones. And essentially, they were just using people's uh, emotions about such a tragedy to get the people on the side of of the government to say, yeah, Apple, crack these phones because we got to stop terrorists, otherwise we're all going to die. And they failed miserably. Apple stood up, and finally the, the government just went around them and hacked it, and the, that case went away. Right. But in the meantime, there's other things going on. Right, and it also raised questions like, well, hey, if the FBI can just essentially hire a private hacker to get into all our stuff, what good are all these you know, security protections? Well, kind of a moot point anyway, because as of uh, this recent term, the Supreme Court quietly rule, approved a rule change that it would allow a federal magistrate judge to issue a search and seizure warrant for any target using anonymity software like Tor to browse the Internet. So if you've been concerned, say, by the NSA or or even by private hackers and spires checking out your stuff and watching what you're uploading or downloading or whatever. Or you just like privacy. Right. You just you just don't want, you know, it doesn't have, you know, I, I, that, that old argument, well, if you weren't doing anything illegal, you shouldn't worry about someone looking at what you're looking at. Well, no, because, you know, there are things that may be embarrassing or not even embarrassing. People, th- th- there's a fundamental right in this country, the right of privacy. It's it's in the Fourth Amendment. We don't want the government nosing around just because. And there doesn't have to be a reason other than that. And in, in, in that case, you may use a piece of software. It's called Tor, to, which is essentially yeah. a privacy software that, right. that lets you surf the Internet without government agencies or hackers spying on you. And thanks to the Supreme Court, unless Congress acts, which we know that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a knee slapper. Unless Congress acts, this rule will go into effect in December and it will give FBI the ability to search computers remotely. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean they're going to come to your house and take your your tower or your laptop. This means hacking in from FBI headquarters, wherever it may be. Uh, yes, search computers remotely, even if the bureau doesn't know where that computer is located, if a user has anonymity software installed on it. So this is essentially, if you want privacy and you use Tor, then the FBI can get a search warrant against you. 
and because they don't know where your computer is, mm-hmm. or then this this could be a phone. Any, I think it's any electronic device. Right. Uh, there's this thing called jurisdiction. Usually, if let's say let's say uh, the state of Maryland wanted to serve, uh, uh, they wanted to search me or something I own, they would go to a Maryland judge because the Maryland judge would have jurisdiction over me as a human being because they don't know where this computer is. Allegedly, they can go to any judge in the country. Right. So. And and I'm sure you've heard of cases throughout your your life if you if you just watch the news even even casually about I can't believe that crazy judge did what that crazy judge did what imagine a situation in which the FBI has a little a little a little Rolodex of all the the judges out there who are tough on crime and don't much care for the Fourth Amendment who will, who who will sign you know a rubber stamp search warrants all day long they're just going to go to those judges first right. Uh- As it stands now, we have what's called Rule 41, and it stipulates that judges can only authorize a search within their own jurisdiction. So in order for the FBI to get permission to search your computer, they have to, I don't know, know where you are. They have to actually have information that they could put on that search warrant request or whatever the process is. Well, if you look at the Fourth Amendment, place or persons to be searched. Right. (laughs) So they they need to know the place and they need to know the person. But this rule says, eh, don't worry about the place and the Fourth Amendment. That doesn't matter much. Right. So Chief Justice John Roberts submitted this change to Congress as part of the court's annual collection of amendments to the federal rules of criminal procedures. Right. So and he made the change. So if you're using software to protect your own privacy, that inherently makes you guilty. Right. Or at least makes you guilty of reasonable suspicion. Shane, you can correct my phrasing there, but I think everybody knows what I mean. I think it's probable cause. But okay. Uh, okay. thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you just by asking to be private, asking to have your your uh, search history and computer kept secret, that essentially makes you guilty enough to be A victim of a search. Consider this. What if Chief Justice John Roberts decided that I want to, I'm the Chief Justice of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, it's not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice of the United States. Interesting. Fun fact. Uh, I want to change Rule 41 that if you have a car with tinted windows, you must be hiding something. If you have curtains on your house. Yes. And because you are trying to hide what you're doing in your car, if you have tinted windows, there's probable cause and a judge can sign a search warrant or you have probable cause as an individual officer of the law to pull everyone over with tinted windows. It's essentially the same thing in the cyber world, in the computer world, in the Internet's world, in the, in the little connection of tubes and you know, things that go over the internet. Exactly. Uh, in the words of Senator Ron Wyden, uh, under the proposed rules, which he, he said this before the rules were changed, under the proposed rules, the government would now be able to obtain a single warrant to access and search thousands or millions of computers at once, and the vast majority of the affected computers would belong to the victims, not the perpetrators, of a cybercrime. There you go. Yes. Fun facts. So... When you when you when you get right down to it, the ju- the chief justice can change these these rules. Congress needs to act. They need to act and stop it. Knock it off. Yes, uh, and we can petition and them the way, to do so. And by the way, members of Congress, I would imagine that you or your family members probably have computers. So even even if you're not going to do it for we the people, do it for yourselves and yes. you bring us along for the ride. I would get suspect that just because you're a member of Congress. Uh-huh. I'm I'm going to guess just based on their I don't know criminal history as a collective body that some of them might have some porn habits. Uh, not even. I'm just saying 
that uh, that you, Congress you unless, may just have something you don't want the entire world to know. Right. But unless you want the vast majority of Americans to have access to what your porn habits may be, perhaps <laughs> you should change Rule 41 back to it what the well, way it I'll was. tell you what. Now put this rule together with a President Trump, which I I'm oh, pretty sure you're going to talk gracious. about talk about later with 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 John Nichols. But imagine a totalitarian because we, you can't just assume we're going to have this benevolent uh, executive in the White House, especially when you look at what's going on this election cycle. You have a President Trump who is who is a, the type of person, you know, a totalitarian type who who's already said he wants to limit the the press, who said he are you know he does he takes on his en- enemies full bore. Can you imagine giving this tool to the person who is the head of the FBI? Yeah. And that person who's the head of the FBI is Donald Trump? Just So just think about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. If that doesn't make you... Uh, uh, so, again, Supreme Court important. Supreme Court, very important. And, uh, you know, we may want privacy, but if you're a member of Congress or some other lawmaker, if the Supreme Court has their way, you may not need as much. Yeah. Let me explain. <laughs> In this recent term, the Supreme Court heard McDonald v. United States. That name may sound familiar because that is the former governor of Virginia who is appealing his 2014 conviction for public corruption. We all remember the Rolex expensive vacations, $20,000 shopping sprees, the $15,000 catering expenses for his daughter's wedding, among many other bribes. He, He got lots and lots and lots of expensive, cool stuff. And in direct exchange in return for him uh, promoting this, using the governor's office to promote the product of the person who gave him all these gifts. Right. Quid pro quo. Oh, yes. Bribery. And and there were ample there was ample evidence to convict him of that crime. It was, you know, uh, uh, heard by a jury uh, for six weeks. The trial went on. We all saw it in the mainstream media and he was convicted along with his wife. So he appealed that appeal reached the the Supreme court and the majority of the justices, when they heard the case uh, in the words of Zephyr teach out, uh, you know, who knows a thing or two about a thing or two oh, yeah. uh, in an opinion piece over at the New York times, the majority seemed ready to defend pay to play as a fundamental feature of our constitutional system of government. And essentially If you remember back in Citizens United, they said, well, we have bribery laws in place, so we don't really need these election uh, uh, contribution laws. Right. And so we can wipe those out. Right. So you can give as much money, but just as long as when you give that money, they're not going to vote for a specific way or put a put in, you know, push a certain piece of legislation. Because if they do that directly, that's bribery. But we already have that law. Right. And then if you go to McCutcheon. McCutcheon was the same thing. You know, you should be able to, you know, donate to a whole bunch of different people and lots to, you know, directly to, you know, but you can't, you know, you can't, it, that's just gratitude. I remember the term gratitude that, you know, they, they may do some things, but so long as it's not direct, they set this bar very, very high. Mm-hmm. And it seems that they're about to even knock down that bar. Yes. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito expressed disbelief. That an official requesting agency action on behalf of a big donor would even be a problem. So well, essentially, so what's, so, what's wrong with that? So essentially, what McDonald's just said is, is yeah, all these facts, you know, as the law is right now, I'm guilty, but you know what, the law is bad. Right, the like law the, because he it violates, violates First, First Amendment, Amendment rights. Right. So giving Rolexes is now speech too. Yes, and as Zephyr Teacher points out so brilliantly, 
In the Citizens United ruling, the court gutted campaign finance laws and acknowledged that American politics face the threat of gift givers and donors trying to corrupt the system, but it held that campaign finance laws were the wrong way to deal with the problem. Bribery laws were the correct path. However, as of this recent case, thanks to McDonald, bribery laws, they say, are not right. And and because we have campaign finance laws, they say. <laughs> Wow. Talk yes. about, now, we have to be very, 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 very clear. Okay. Uh, Zephyr Teachout uh, of New York, she is writing an opinion piece, and this yes. is based on the oral arguments. The Supreme Court hasn't ruled on this yet. Right. And sometimes uh, justices ask questions uh, in a... Uh, to purposely right. get the answer that would disprove the case. In an adversarial case. way, yes. where they're essentially they're taking the other side from where they're going to vote. Playing devil's advocate, right. if now, you would. Now, leaving that aside... You know, astute people, and Zephyr Teachout is one of them, can sometimes read those tea leaves pretty well. And it's good to have these warning bells ahead of time, because you'll, you'll remember when it came to a couple of the Obamacare cases, I believe popular support can move the Supreme Court, whether they it will admit it or not. I agree. So this is one to keep an eye on, because... It, you know, it, it seems to be the the very last, last straw when it comes to money and, and, and the corruption of money in politics. Right. And it, to this circular logic of, uh, you know, we don't need campaign finance laws because we've got bribery laws on the books. Well, bribery laws, you know, you should be able to bribe because it's free speech, essentially, or accept bribes uh, based on the court's uh, uh, hypothetical ruling here. Uh it's circular logic. I of mean, how do we get anywhere? And what's left of our democracy? What's left of keeping money out of politics? And I mean, at that point, is it really just sponsor a politician, put the, the NASCAR patch on their shoulder? That politician represents DuPont. That politician represents, but, but you know, I don't know, Windows. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clearer than ever that in so many ways, the First Amendment is being used as a sword to cut through so many things that we hold dear in this country. Mm -hmm. When, it, you know, we see this happening, of course, in campaign finance, and we've been seeing it since 2010, actually, probably further back than that. Yeah. The First Amendment. And then, of course, we're seeing the religious right using the First Amendment to, to suppress other people's uh, uh, freedoms and expression and just liberties to enjoy uh, living a, the life as a United States citizen. It's time I know this. a lot of people get really worried when you start fiddling with the Constitution, but the Constitution, actually, when it was written, was intended to be revisited every so often, and we haven't, except for amending it a few times, 127 times. The First Amendment needs some some work, yeah. and I know people are working on it very hard with Move to Amend and, and, and a number of people in Congress. That is more important than ever because it ain't even going to stop with this case. It's oh, going to no. keep going until it essentially just forget about it. And that really worries me. We are running out of campaign finance limitations right. for them to strike down. And this is yet another example of where the, the two justice systems, you know, Hey, for, for each and every one of us, you're presumed guilty. Mm -hmm. The FBI can search your stuff. You have no privacy, but if you're a lawmaker, if you're a person of power, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And the Supreme court, the highest court in our nation We'll back you up on it. Yet another reason why this 2016 election cycle is so important because the Supreme Court is made or broken with who sits in the White House. And we're going to consider about a few of those 
nominees or potential nominees at this point with our next guest, John Nichols, national affairs correspondent with The Nation and co-author of the new book, People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizen's Citizenless Democracy. This is the broadcast. You're listening to Danielle and Shano filling in and we'll be back with more. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. And if I had a nickel for each time that I've been put on to the broadcast. I am Danielle here with Shano sitting in for the one and only Brad Friedman and joining us is the nickel man himself, John Nichols, national affairs <laughs> correspondent with the Nation magazine, co-author of numerous books including the latest People Get Ready: The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. Uh, uh amazing articles always available at thenation.com. Thank you so much for joining us, John. It's a total pleasure to be with you. I don't think I've ever been introduced with that song oh then we'll have to send it to you it should be your new ringtone (laughs) i wouldn't mind at all (laughs) and for anybody who uh doesn't follow john please do over on twitter at nichols uprising and at the nation um you post so many amazing articles i sometimes don't know where to start i actually have three printed out in front of me (laughs) it's like it's, it's like being a kid in the candy store um but i would like to start if you don't mind with A little schadenfreude on what is going on in the Republican Party with the Stop Trump movement. Um, You linking this to Goldwater. Would you explain? Sure. Absolutely. And I think it's the only way to really understand it, because uh, it's an interesting thing with a political party. When we think of political parties as clearly defined entities that have infrastructure and elites and, and, you know, they, they make a certain amount of sense, even if we disagree with them. But there are moments in history where a political party is thrown a challenge that it's not up to. And as a result, that party veers toward the cliff. I mean, it's just you're heading toward the cliff, and you know what's going to happen. I shouldn't say you know for sure, because we never do. But you have a sense of what's going to happen, that you know everything's going to blow up, that uh, the party itself may really be severely harmed. It may lose a lot, you know, all sorts of problems. And, but it can't stop itself. You know? And that's where you'd see that vulnerability. In 1964, the Republican Party uh, had in the candidacy of Barry Goldwater a challenge that, you know, for a variety of reasons, should have been very easy to deal with. Uh, you had a candidate in Goldwater who was a very, you know, fascinating person, very interesting person, but one of the most extreme figures at that time in American politics. 
somebody who said and did things that that were just way far from where the mainstream was, and that actually really troubled people, that, that unsettled folks. That almost every time he opened his mouth, there was a new controversy. <laughs> and so, I know it sounds familiar. Yes, it and does. the elites of the Republican Party were horrified. They were like, oh, we, we're going to lose with this guy. We're going to lose really badly. we got to stop him. Not just because of the fear of a defeat. And I don't think they even began to recognize how you know, scorching the defeat might be, but also because of the fear of what it would do to their party, how it might transform their party into something so extreme, so unlikable, that uh, it wouldn't just be about one election defeat, it could become something that ran deeper. And so they tried to stop them. And they, it's so familiar to what's happening right now. They, you know, tried mainstream candidates who were well-regarded, and that didn't work. Then they tried, you know, governors, and then they tried senators, and they, you know, they, they kept throwing different people at Goldwater to try and stop them. They tried to work with each other and collaborate and stay in some states, go out of others, let different people run in different places. They did all of this, and because they never coherently challenged him, because they didn't get their focus, they just kept throwing everything at it, uh, they failed. Miserably, Goldwater was nominated, and he went on to, you know, one of the most scorching defeats in, in modern American political history, losing, you know, 60% of the vote, but also uh, losing states that have not voted Democratic, that have not been lost by the Republicans since, right? So it's this amazing big deal thing. Today, the Republican Party looks at a similar situation with Trump. Now, I'm not saying Trump is necessarily going to be defeated. Yes, at, at, I, I that was actually going to be one of my questions for you. So I'm glad you you got to that. I I I almost worry if Democrats are lumping him in with Goldwater and and being a little too uh, nonchalant about this election. Well, that's a very important and really good question because that's a, the point of my piece is to make the comparison to that Goldwater moment and try to explain why the Republican elites uh, are failing to stop Trump now. Uh, but you're exactly right that we should be careful about extrapolating from their fear into assumptions about our current circumstances. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the fear of Republican elites, when they look at polling that shows 70 to 80 percent of women, 80 to 90 percent of Hispanics, you know, I look like, I think it's a some poll, over 90 percent of African Americans, uh, stunning levels of young people are horrified by this guy, right? Yeah. You look at all that polling and you say, wow, that's that's a disaster in the making. I think that's what happens with the Republican elites, uh, be they moderates, very conservative, wherever they're, you know, whatever their political claim to be, they see Trump as, as a potential disaster in the making. And I think pundits, probably myself included at some point, in the if I could classify myself as a pundit, uh, he, Made the same mistake. You know, you right here, the candidate who pundits once claimed had a 35 percent ceiling is now winning every state by more than 50 percent, some of them by 60 percent. I I I am not pointing fingers at any uh, in the political talk media or or press uh, about underestimating because I believe I've done so myself. I don't think any of us saw. Trump rising to the level of notoriety and 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 <laughs> seriousness as a candidate as we're seeing him now. Well, and so this gets into another part. This is separate from the piece I wrote. 
piece I wrote was about, you know, this comparison and explaining why the elites in the Republican Party are having such a hard time stopping this guy. We pull a break on that and say, well, let's look at this broader picture. What can happen? Well, here's the important thing to understand. If it is reality that Donald Trump is going to face Hillary Clinton, now, there's still some combativeness on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Sanders campaign continues, and they, you know, it's getting toward a point where Hillary Clinton's lead is very dominant, uh, but they're still pursuing. On the Republican side, you still hear, you know, Ted Cruz making his moves and, and other folks talking about contested conventions and things like that. So with all that accepted, if we say, well, you know, it looks like there could be a Trump versus Clinton race. Here's the interesting dynamic that makes it different from 64. Uh, aside from everything else that's different from 64, um, including some, you know, human tragedy with the assassination of President Kennedy mm-hmm. all the previous year. Um, this year, we have a couple things that have, have locked in. Um, number one, the Republican nominee is not likely to lose anywhere near as many states, even if it's a very weak nominee. The, the Deep South and the Interior West has become intensely Republican, much more so than it was in, in the past. And so Trump begins with a bigger base if he's a nominee. There's another factor as well. Uh, Hillary Clinton's negatives are exceptionally high. Yes. Uh, for a Democratic nominee. Trump's are astronomically high for a Republican nominee. But because Clinton's negatives are as high as they are, we already know what Trump's strategy will be. It won't be to necessarily to raise his own appeal, because it's very, very hard to you know, go from a point in one year of being, you know, making yourself somebody who everybody dislikes to suddenly making yourself somebody that everybody likes. So if, unless Trump's getting very bad advice, his goal won't be to make himself more popular. It will be to take the existing negatives on Hillary Clinton and blow them up, right? Make them extremely high so that people will basically dislike both of these candidates. And then in that context, Trump makes his play. And so that's an important thing to understand that I think is very different from the 64 scenario and very different from a lot of these previous scenarios. It doesn't mean necessarily that Trump won't get wiped out. He could get wiped out. Mm-hmm. But he has a strategy, and that strategy is, as he's already showing, to go wildly negative on Clinton, to really try and blow that up. Now, there's two other factors that I think are important to remember at this point, and, and they're big, big changes. It's not just the elites in the Republican Party that lack power and that, that don't necessarily, aren't able necessarily to define things now. Elites in general are far less powerful than they were. Not economic elites. I mean, we have concentrated economic power, but the ability of elites to shape an election, to shape the boundaries of an election, which certainly existed in the past, uh, have been kind of blown up by social media and by the collapse of traditional media. And Trump, to a better extent probably than anybody I've seen in recent decades, understands that. And so he is going to be very good at exploiting um, the opening that a uh, a candidate like him has. Yeah, it's it it's really an interesting way to frame this whole really confusing election cycle. I want to quickly remind everybody we're speaking with John Nichols, national affairs correspondent with The Nation. Uh, you can check that out over at thenation.com and of course on Twitter at Nichols Uprising and at The Nation. It seems uh, your point just a moment ago about the elites and perhaps the media being the connection there. To me, it almost seems like that's what's going on. Uh, or going wrong, uh, rather, in both parties, where the elites on the Republican side, 
don't get it. They have nurtured a base that is hateful and racist and uh, wants somebody to blame, likes name calling, likes the, the bloviating mean guy. You know, that's who they have nurtured. And I feel like they're kind of reaping the reward for that on the progressive side, on the Democratic side. You know, you have this this huge swath of young people who have really progressive values, who who believe that things like free education for, you know, national health care are not just uh, uh, silly ideas, but that they are realistic proposals. They recognize that these are things in the international community that are quite common. And it seems like uh, to me, the elites are kind of missing the boat on that side as well. Do you think it's the same connection that it's the media failure or or perhaps yeah. you have a different interpretation? You know, I'm, I'm kind of applying my opinion to you. I apologize. No, I like your opinion. I think it's quite <laughs> valuable. Here's the, there are differences in the Democratic Party from the Republican Party. And one of the most profound differences is this. Um, the Democratic Party has, in recent decades, uh, since Bill Clinton, uh, been quite expert at triangulation. <laughs> and that is to take uh, elements of, of what the right's doing, uh, repurpose them, and then also take elements of what the left is demanding and repurpose it. And so the Democratic Party's actually gotten, at the highest level, pretty good at this for positive and negative, right? And to my mind, I'm ill at ease with triangulation because I think it, it dumbs down uh, policy goals, and I think it also limits the, what could be accomplished. Yeah, so I, I'm not a big fan of it. I agree with you. But, but politically, in an electoral context, that can often be very successful. It can, it can have... It can have benefits. Um, here's where an addiction to triangulation though can become very, very dangerous. In this election cycle, you've seen with Bernie Sanders' campaign, a defining out of what is possible. And, and also, I would suggest something else. You, know, you were suggesting that all these young people, um, and really about 40 to 45 percent of the party, if we look at our voting patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is beyond. It, it's an oversimplification to say young people. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's the, a lot of older. Like, yeah, well, myself included. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I think yeah. it's just an easy group to uh, to identify as as homogenous at this point. Sorry, but it's this big group of the Democratic Party yes. is saying, you know, we really want something much clearer, a much stronger stand on a lot of these issues, and also noting that that these are not you know just ideals; they're popular ideas. People really polling shows these, you know. Uh, healthcare for all, easily accessible education for all, uh, trade policies that actually protect workers and families and the environment. And these are very, very popular things, a substantial increase in the minimum wage. And so, you know, but you use the word possible. This is the only place where I might tinker with your very wise assessment. Okay. <laughs> I all means. among the young voters, it's actually not, something, not about being for something that's possible. I don't think it's idealism in this case. I think it's about being for something that's necessary. I think for an awfully lot of them, looking at the near and long-term future, where we're seeing you know rapid globalization, heavy-duty deindustrialization, automation of our industries, and you know a digital revolution that's transforming almost everything. I think an awfully lot of young people are looking at the future, and they're very uncertain about the notion that the traditional job will even exist. Mm-hmm. And that the sufficient compensation to pay for your education, to get you into society, to get you in a stable circumstance like your parents or your grandparents, but that's, that's really getting harder and harder to imagine. In that context, the idea of a social welfare state, one that provides a guarantee of health care, 
It provides guarantee of uh, clear access to education as far as it can take you, at you know without debt. Um, that also really has guarantees as regards you know educate or as regards transportation, housing, job creation. You know, again, things that that might have seemed like too much government to previous generations, I don't think seem all that frightening to people. And this is not that young people want big, strong, you know, big brother government or anything like that. Quite the opposite. Yeah, I think there is a libertarian stream in a lot of young voters, but they're not uncomfortable with the idea of having, you know, a social welfare state that provides some underpinning in a very unstable economic circumstance. If the Democratic Party does not understand that and make that a huge part of its message and of its presentation in the fall, I think there is a tremendous potential, not a certainty, a tremendous potential that you could have not, not any big movement of Sanders backers or young people to vote for Trump. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see that. But I do see the potential of a drop-off of just a lot of people who, especially if it's a horribly negative, horribly off-putting campaign, simply say, I don't see any good coming of this, and, and, and step away from the process. So I see the embrace of big, bold ideas, very progressive ideas, uh, and ideas that really do talk about in profound ways making guarantees in people's lives as regards healthcare, education, a host of services. I see that not as an option, but as a necessity for mobilizing uh, particular blocks of voters. Yeah, I, and, and I think Democrats ought to think about that very seriously. I completely agree. And I, all, I, I even think that that applies to some degree um, with the issue that's going on in the Republican Party, where you have this, this wide group of, you know, libertarian Tea Party voters. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. increasingly, if you poll them, they still want uh, you know, health care for people who can't afford it. They still oh, want, yeah. you know, big oh, yeah. business out of our election cycle. They still want they're, they're more European conservative than than typical historically American conservative. And I think that that's where politics in general is going. It's just a matter of whether or not the party system, our two party system catches up. Uh, I guess that's my takeaway from looking. I have all your articles in front of me <laughs> and, and it was kind of the the broader picture I see there. Well, you're smarter than I am. Oh, by no means. You know, see all that. No, I'm <laughs> serious because you're exactly, I think you're exactly right. I think that, that if we pull all these threads together, uh, what we do come away with is a realization that our current two-party system is completely incapable of responding to the challenges of the moment and the evolution of not just our politics, but our economics and our society. And so then in a circumstance like that, where you're unlikely to change the two-party system this year, unfortunately, I mean, I would like to see things open up, but where that becomes tough, then in a setting like that, the question becomes, which party does a better job of recognizing the reality? And I think your point is really important, the one that you make there, about this notion of European conservatives. One of the things that Donald Trump has proven, and in a great big way, is how regionalized the Republican Party still is. Mm-hmm. And that there are parts of this country where the Republican Party's base is still, like the Northeast, for instance, profoundly worried about jobs and apparently not all that freaked out about social issues. Yeah. Which, you know, I think that goes against what a lot of pundits, what a lot of analysts have said. Now, again, that creates 
great big openings. Because imagine if you could, as you know, again, this is if Democrats were thinking in a big way. Imagine if you could put together young people, Hispanics, African Americans, women, especially young women, um, and union members, uh, all sorts of activists of multiracial, and then to start to cut into a portion of the white working class that might be open to Trump. Now, how do you do that? It's not that hard, actually. You fully embrace a liberation, solidarity politics, one that says our problem is not one another, it's not the immigrant, it's not the person who practices a different religion, it's not the woman, it's not the uh, lesbian or gay, it's not, it's not somebody you know, who, who is historically demonized or pointed at or picked on. Those, those, that's not where the problem is. That's not where the challenge is. The challenge is the concentrated power, especially concentrated economic power. So you deliver that core message, right? And then you combine that with a genuine economic message, a real, you know, one of a big change on trade policy, on job creation, on delivery of, of basic and necessary services. You put those pieces together, right? And you deliver that message well, I think there's tremendous potential to, you know, shake up the whole politics and to isolate a Donald Trump. But if you fail in elements of that, because you can't just have half of it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, it, you, if you don't do the liberation solidarity politics that puts together communities that have historically been um, oppressed, picked on, attacked, with a real economics that focuses outward and in the most positive ways, uh, that talks about what we can do. If you fail in putting that all together, you you leave open vulnerabilities. Number one, of losing some of those economic debates to a populist like Trump who just makes promises. But number two, of seeing fall off in voting by some of the constituent groups in your coalitions. Yep. I completely agree. And uh, I don't know that the parties are going to get it this time. I think all of us uh, who've who've watched the political system are a little bit afraid to make any kind of prediction. But in the meantime, we can all take a little joy out of the fact that Ted Cruz candidacy is not catching on. Really having a hard time. Yes. Uh, Uh, As you said, the only Republican that is uh, uh, who is less appealing than Trump. Uh, John, you have so much. You've kind of renewed my hope. And I really needed that today and in this political uh, uh, this primary season specifically. And I I can't thank you enough for that. It's a pleasure to talk with you always. And and I'm delighted that we made it through this whole conversation without trying to explain why anyone would want Carly Fiorina for vice president. Oh, it's just so that he doesn't have to attack Hillary. (laughs) Yeah, but I agree. Uh, John Nichols, everyone, national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine. Go out, check out his new book, People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy and all his amazing work over at The Nation. Thank you so much, John. Total pleasure to be with you as always. Coming up next on the broadcast, would you believe that the international community dislikes Donald Trump even more than we do. Coming up next. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the broadcast. This is Danielle and Shano sitting in for Brad and the lovely Desi today. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. You know, in all of the coverage of the election, uh, of, of news in general, sometimes it gets so serious. It doesn't. And, and so frustrating, especially in this heated primary cycle. I stay the heck away from Facebook, Twitter. Like it makes that. for really good producers. Well, no, I do peek into it. Yeah. Well, let's just say I don't. I don't wade into it anymore like I once did. I right. No, no, you know, fight picking, no taking the bait. Exactly. But you but know, it, ever more these days, we need a little chance to laugh. You know, it, we need some good. We need a little bad. Sometimes yeah. bad can be some good. good and some bad and maybe some funny. Some funny. <laughs> and that was. I would imagine that someone else there is out there has done the good, the bad, and the funny. I'm sure. So that was our idea, but somehow, some way, as we were preparing for this show today, you found all three in one. <laughs> it is good, it is bad, and it is funny simultaneously. I'm like, this is how to do the end of the show. Yes, thanks to the fine work of Think Progress. Uh, there's an article over at Think Progress. It's it's nearly a book. Or a newspaper, dare a lot of I research, say. A lot of work. Uh, what newspapers in 13 countries around the world, I added that one, thanks for the <laughs> intro music, Shano, uh, in 13 countries are saying about Donald Trump. Uh, we know what our media here is saying, good and bad. They're just saying it way, 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 way too often. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, but yes. okay. Well, and American media tends to dumb things down a little bit. Tends yeah. to, uh, you know, the corporate media tends to put it at a... a at a seventh grade well, also, level, or as, so? as you were also talking with John Nichols about uh, the the media tends to uh, build up heroes and then knock them down. It's yes. kind of the fair, favorite pastime. So I I think we actually are watching that in 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 real time as as things go on. But in terms of the in depth coverage, you, you know, uh, there were pictures that we were watching recently of of just helicopter shots of the guy walking yes. around the protesters. Yes, that's what that's our media news. That's what our media covers. This is a camera following Trump from his plane to his speech and from his speech to his plane, let alone the garbage in between right. that so, he calls a uh, a press event. But but in, we're not alone in feeling this this, this we're problem. We're not, but the international I think they take it much more personally. The international media just does it so much better sometimes. Yeah. For instance, uh, in the Netherlands, a local paper, I will not try and pronounce uh, a lot of these names because they are translations and I am horrible at pronouncing things in general, even in my own language. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, which one's that? Danielle? I'm kidding. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a Netherlands newspaper in analyzing Trump and his, uh, his, his broad support in the Republican party, uh, hearkened back to an evolutionary study about monkeys. And I, I know this may really upset some uh, religious Trump supporters, but according to that newspaper, uh, monkeys live in groups with a clear hierarchical, see, Hierarchical. Thank you. Structure whereby one dominant male, the alpha, is the boss. He says, uh, th this paper says, it's easier for other monkeys in the group to make themselves subordinate to the alpha, alpha rather than join the losers. And they used losers, obviously, the term yeah. for Trump. The, United, the weak ones. Yes. The United Kingdom, uh, Financial Times. Mr. Trump is a promoter of paranoid fantasies, a xenophobe, an ignoramus. But... It wasn't just the newspapers and just the official press outlets that got in on this game okay. or uh, that 
Think Progress brilliantly outlined, um, including... <laughs> Sorry, there's there's a lot here. Uh, a lot of people have something to say. A star sports writer from Toronto by the name of Bruce Arthur tweeted, quote, to my American friends, I have an eight tent, eight person tent that I can set up in the forest behind my house, but you may need your own air mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was hypothesizing what Americans should do should Trump become president. I have something to say about that. OK. And in, in, in the in the awful scenario that we get any Republican. I know that a lot of people, and this happens every election cycle, does it not? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still waiting for those who are upset with Obama perhaps becoming president, saying, oh, yes. oh I'm going to Costa Rica if they're Obamacare. <coughs> Rush Limbaugh. Uh, whomever. I don't want to call anyone out by name, but yeah, Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> this happens every election cycle. And you know what? It, it, you know, I, I don't like to say, oh, I'm such a patriot. You know, it, I, I know that word is often thrown around as, as a, either a badge of courage or a, a whatever. But one of the things about loving your country and, and the Constitution and and where if, if you're you know in the United States listening to this and are American or whatever nation you're from, part of it is fighting for that, fighting for what you know. I, I understand the times can be tough. Yes, but it, it, I think it's worth fighting for. And I, I, there are times where I say I'm leaving, but you know what? I'm not because even if a Republican gets here, that means that we got to fight even harder. Well, I I definitely think and it's, I know they meant it in jest. And I a, definitely think it's worth fighting for. I think. I, I look at these headlines um, in the context of if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Absolutely. And and it is very frustrating to see Trump's rise to popularity because, let's face it, it does mean that uh, xenophobia and racism and hate are more powerful in this country than we would like to believe. I hate to break it to everyone, but if you go look at some of the parties that are rising in power in Europe, the exact same thing is happening. Right. This is how elections often are won. If you want to quote the, the movie The American President— you know, you, you tell a group of people about and you remind them of a, of a simpler time, a, a time when that was there was that was better and people were freer. And essentially they're they're whitewashing. And I mean that whitewashing the 1950s and the 1960s. Saying, mm-hmm. Wasn't life great back then? Because most people don't remember it or only remember the good parts because that's the way a brain works. And then they say, well, look at your lousy lot in life. And guess what? I have just the person to blame. It isn't government. It isn't big business. It isn't even you. It's that person over there. Yep. And that's where hate comes from. And that's why it works so well in politics, because it doesn't require the voter to take any responsibility. And it certainly doesn't make uh, have Republicans or the, you know the government take any responsibility. No. Uh, actually, in the words of a Mexican academic, uh, Sergio Aguayo, uh, he compared the anti-Mexican sentiment of Trump and, his, and many of his supporters to the fear of communism and McCarthyism in the United States. And he called it today's, quote, unquote, brown panic. Uh, uh, on a lighter note, Mexican newspaper Millennio quote from back in September of 2015. And wow, they, they were nailed it way back. The man who managed to make us missed the Bush clan, (laughs) (laughs) the man who made Mexico miss W yes, that once once. can't can't get fooled again. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you know, Hey, while I agree, Stay here, fight, vote, try and change our country. That's what we need to do. But you're not alone if you're worried about what a Trump presidency would look like and you've considered fleeing the country. In fact, uh, after uh, the recent Tuesday Acela primary, the the Mm -hmm. East Coast, uh, spikes on Google of the phrase moving to Canada. 
<laughs> yes. Doesn't surprise me. Well, this is, I mean, I guess we're trying to make this funny. So this is a guy who really should have a breathalyzer attached to his Twitter account. Yes. Right? He, he absolutely he should. have to should. actually blow into the little tube before he's allowed to hit the tweet button. Imagine him. I think they're going to have to install one on the, on the, on the nuke button. Because uh, it, it, think about what this guy does late at night. You know, I don't know if he's doing so much any, anymore. I don't follow the guy. But he seems, you know, quite irrational. So while these are funny quotes, they are based on a little bit of reality of, of you know, people being worried that he, this guy might be the leader of the free world, as we often call right. our president. Uh, Germany, who knows a thing or two about uh, crazy dictators who sweep the, uh, the, the popular opinion, uh, a few months ago wrote it, what Think Progress says perhaps the best description of Trump. And they wrote, uh, and I will not try and pronounce this. German newspaper name. Oh, come on, I please try. No, it, it, I can tell you the first word is Frankfurter. Uh-huh. And that's that's all you're getting. Okay. Uh, if a <laughs> if a communist propaganda mis- if a communist propaganda ministry had commissioned a gifted cartoonist to draw a typical American rogue, he would have invented a figure like the Donald, a man who embodies the wealthy boorish philistine. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from his self important attitude on the way his hair his to the way his hair is folded. This way and that, and to someone for whom nothing is sacred. Hmm. Yes. In other words, he is a caricature of the dumb, boorish, wealthy American. And, uh, you know, I like that they coined that. If the propaganda ministry that came up (laughs) with that cartoon, they couldn't have done it better than the actual Donald. I mean, even... As far as uh, Iran, the Trump storm is coming, their their local newspaper. Uh, the tweets and the, the pictures in this article are just stunning. I mean, it, you know, the, they are funny, mm-hmm. brilliant writers, yes. but they are also concerned and they are considering what it means for them. Sure, because it affects the entire world. We tend to be, we tend to stick our noses as Americans in a lot of different places around the world. And given uh, the idiosyncrasies and, and irrationality and nastiness uh, out of, out of heck, all the Republicans, I think a good portion of the world's really worried and watching carefully yeah. what's going on. Uh, and, and rightfully so. Japan, the wild child of a lost big power, is engulfing people in his crazy whirlpool. That goes on, uh, you know, as translated. Trump, quote, was a joker and considered a buffoon in the beginning. But now he's jumped to a position of a probable winner and something that wouldn't be good for Japan. The thing that's, that's fascinating and frightening simultaneously here mm-hmm. is that... I, I, I'm not going to I shouldn't you know say this is all Trump supporters, but I think this is a true statement about many, if not most Trump supporters, that their level of nationalism is such that if the rest of the world doesn't like them, that's a badge of courage. That's a good that's point. A, that's a hey, because America's the best and the rest of you suck. And if you don't like us, that's just because you're jealous because we're number one. So if it's, it's actually getting along with the rest of the world is not a good thing in their minds. So these types of arguments, I don't think are going to you know eat into his base of support. Thankfully, his base of support. You know, th- this depends on who turns out, as you spoke about with John Nichols, is a my is a barely a majority of a minority of this country. Yeah. Um, 
South Africa. I, I love this one. Um, in reference to how badly the Republican Party can't figure out what to do with Trump, they write, Mama doesn't want the baby. The machine begot a monster. It's doomsday time for the grand old party. It makes me think of a uh, quote from a John Nichols article that I have in front of me. I love this. Uh, the Stop Trump movement is f- a flailing exercise in, self-indul- in self-indulgence that cannot get its act together, let alone find a clear path to victory. Uh, uh, the, the party can't figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is scratching their head going, is, is this guy for real? Mm-hmm. Is what do we do if this guy's for real? Yeah. Also, you have to admit, just you know, from a from a thousand or two thousand foot perspective, that all these nations are writing with such interest about our elections. How often have you read in our papers with that kind of interest in other countries' elections? Yeah. It, it goes right back to the American number one. Well, it it also makes you realize that while we consider ourselves you know, the world power and the the most powerful country on earth, that is not a position that is guaranteed for all eternity. And and what we do in this election cycle could actually make a big difference in what that future looks like. And and yes, it's fun. And I need to laugh. Sure. A little, at least when thinking about a potential Donald Trump presidency. But it is that important that we get active, that we stay involved and we make sure that it doesn't happen. That's what Brad and Desi do every day to get you involved, to make you keep fighting and to monitor the vote as closely as they do. And we thank them for that hard work day in and day out, as well as for the wonderful chance and opportunity to spend a little bit of your time with you. Thanks so much for listening today. We really appreciate it. And Brad and Desi will be back before you know it. This is the Bradcast signing off. Danielle and Shano, thanks for listening. <laughs>